All right, let me begin. We'll start off with you guys. So does anybody have a question? If you do, if you would uh, get up, go to the mic and ask the question. We'll be glad to uh, entertain it. Uh, and so that there's not a lull as we're waiting, uh, I'll take a question that was given to us from uh, uh, our students. And then again, if you have a question, just get up, move to the mic, uh, and we'll be glad to receive it. But uh, we'll start with this one. Um, it seems to me that our Presbyterian brothers like Sinclair Ferguson are very close in theology with Baptist, uh, minus infant baptism and some forms of covenantal theology. And I would also add uh, their understanding of ecclesiology as well, since they have a Presbyterian form of church government. Uh, at what point do you participate or break fellowship, preach in their pulpit, uh, vice versa? Uh, I'm thinking along the lines of theological triage. So, guys, uh, Dr. Keithley, how would you respond? You pastored for 20, 15 years. Would you allow an evangelical Presbyterian to preach in your pulpit? I would love to have someone like uh, Ligon Duncan preach in my church. Uh, if I had the opportunity uh, to have uh, someone like that preach for me, I would be delighted to have him in my pulpit on a Sunday morning. And so uh, there is a triage uh, that we, we, we do observe and we employ. Uh, obviously, if we are one with the gospel, uh, then we have great liberty in having this person in my pulpit. However, we are talking about a triage, so there does come a point where if uh, Dr. Duncan uh, wanted, had the opportunity to have him preach, it'd be great. If I had the opportunity to call, have him called to be my, our, our pastor, I'd have to say, uh, Dr. Duncan, let's meet me at the baptistry, uh, and, and we, we will fix this, this little issue in your life, and we'll be delighted to have you on staff uh, at our church. And so uh, I think that there is a pyramid or triage or whatever analogy you want to use and that uh, we do have a great deal of liberty on our, uh, our cooperation, uh, our involvement, our, our uh, working together in joint projects. There is a triage that goes down. Like Then, then there are certain groups uh, that I belong to and that many of the faculty belong to, such as the Evangelical Theological Society. It's a minimalist group. In other words, we, we agree basically on C.S. Lewis's definition of mere Christianity. In other words, we... We hold to the inerrancy of Scripture. We hold to the doctrine of the Trinity. But beyond that, there is broad disagreement. I mean, we have Church of Christ, those who would hold to you know, some ideas of baptismal regeneration that I would have a problem with, uh, things of that nature. I'm, I am happy to work with, with them in an academic setting uh, of that nature, and especially whenever we together defend the inerrancy of Scripture, uh, those kinds of things. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to have that person preach in my church. Uh, nor would I have him uh, on staff uh, with me. So there is a triage there. And I think that the gospel itself gives you uh, the, the way to understand. In other words, the more agreement we have on the elements of the gospel, what the gospel is about, the more free I feel in having my involvement uh, with him in my church. Hey, Dr. Ashford. I would mention uh, one way that I would not work with a Presbyterian. I would not want to uh, be on a church planting team with a Presbyterian. But the right. very thing that we disagree on ecclesiology has to do with the task that's at hand. And, uh, and so there would be an example of a way in which uh, we probably would not. 
Okay. And, and by the way, we had Sinclair Ferguson here probably three years ago for our theology uh, in ministry conference. He did a phenomenal job. I still remember he preached on James 4, 1 through 10. That, that's how significant and impacting his message was. Lig Duncan did our preaching lectures last year. Uh, when Lottie Moon was on the mission field, when there was a lack of men which there always is on the mission field. She had Presbyterians fill preaching posts, uh, but did they partner together in planning churches? No, because the issue of baptism, I think, would separate us not with the gospel, but would separate us in our ability to plant churches together. But I think the question is, yes, we'd love to have someone like a Sinclair Ferguson or a Lig Duncan speak in our churches, and they have spoken here uh, in our seminary, uh, both of those individuals. Uh, yeah, Mark? Uh, real quick, I want to ask Dr. Ashford a clarifying question on that. Um, let's say you had a team from the summit or Open Door move to Denver, and there was another uh, uh, Presbyterian Church of America was doing another church plant in Denver and they're 10 blocks from each other. When you said that they, you wouldn't want to do a church plant with them, um, spell out a little bit of those parameters. Do you mean that you wouldn't create one uh, local body, but you would do evangelism with them? Or to, yeah, to clarify okay. that a little yeah bit. great point. So, yeah, what I wouldn't do is I wouldn't, for example, join a church planting team with, say, two Baptists and two Presbyterians. We plant the church, and then the four of us pastor it together because the very things we disagree on are at the heart of what we just did is plant a church. However... Um, if you had two different churches being planted, I think a Presbyterian Church of America, Conservative Church, Southern Baptist Church, multiple ways they could work together, similar to what uh, Dr. Keatley referred to, um, evangelism, um, other ways of bearing witness to the truth of God's word, um, abortion, and pro-life, pro-choice issues. Actually, actually, the church I grew up in was exactly that. Uh, they had uh, a Baptist preacher one week and a Presbyterian preacher the next week. Uh, they, they would try, and, and it, it finally, they said, okay, wait a minute, we're either going to have to have a Baptist ecclesiology or a Presbyterian ecclesiology, and, and the church decided to go, you know, we believe in baptism uh, for believers by immersion, we're going to be Baptist. Uh, and so, so, so I actually grew up in a church that tried that. And, and as a practical matter, it, it, you know, good intentions, it, it, it doesn't work. Since it's on the same page, I'll take it because uh, I see no one standing at a mic. Um, this question gets asked every time we do the forum, but this is a different way of asking it. Uh, I heard someone quote this question from a magazine recently. Can one be a biblical inerrantist and be opposed to the consumption of alcohol? Well, I think the answer would be yes, since there are four biblical inerrantists sitting up here and all of us uh, have uh, accepted the covenantal requirement to the school not to participate in the consumption of alcohol. And so, yeah, I think you can be a biblical inerrantist and uh, oppose the consumption of alcohol. Now, how you get there varies. There's some who think that there is chapter and verse that gets you there. I strongly suspect not one of us on this platform thinks you can do that, but there are other guidelines in terms of an ethic of love, issues of wisdom and witness that would allow us in our particular context to see this as a, as a better way. Uh, let me say this, though, because I don't think sometimes students understand the full ramification of this, and I'm going to be very quick. Um, our policy with respect to the consumption of alcohol is a trustee policy. That's one that I support and am in agreement with, but that policy would not be changed except by an action of the Board of Trustees. 
Uh, furthermore, I think it would be very fair to say it is the overwhelming expectation of the churches of the Southern Baptist Convention, who, by the way, foot a significant portion of all of your tuition. Uh, just again, remember, you pay $200 a semester hour ballpark as opposed to four to $600 a semester hour that you would otherwise pay apart from the very generous gifts of Southern Baptist. And so there's a uh, covenantal relationship there as well. But then, as I said earlier, uh, there are those of us like myself who have written on this extensively. You go to the website and basically make a witness wisdom kind of argument uh, for this issue. So, uh, yes, but I also think you can be an anarchist and accept the uh, uh, consumption of alcohol, though I think you've got to be very clear, drunkenness is always condemned in the Bible as sin, and any degree of inebriation that impairs you in any way, also I think the Bible is pretty clear on, uh, is a matter of, of sinful behavior. So even though my, my good friend and I, Mark Driscoll, disagree on the uh, issue of alcohol, we're lockstep on the issue of drunkenness lockstep on the issue of inebriation. And Mark himself has been very clear. If you enter into a covenantal arrangement with a school, with a church, with a denomination uh, that is going to provide funding for you and support for you, even though you may differ on this issue personally, uh, you better abide by that covenant. In fact, the issue is far more important and more significant with respect to your integrity that you would hold out your hand and receive a gift from somebody and then violate that covenant. Uh, that's much more serious to me uh, and I suspect to my colleagues up here than your particular view on the issue of alcohol. Well, we have someone standing here. Uh, give us your name, where you're from, and your question. My name is Matthew Blydwell. I'm from Chico, California. Uh, my question is, well, the person who led me to Christ thinks that hip-hop is the devil, and not really. Um, I myself listen to people like Shylin and whatnot. Um, I'm just wondering if y'all have any insight as to when, you know, like in Romans 14, do I, you know, never listen to it again for the sake of him stumbling, or is that even the correct issue? Do we depart, or do I confront him? Uh, what would be um, a good way to address that? Dr. Lederbach, our ethicist. Dr. Ashford, our whatever. <laughs> yeah, okay, so, you know, w when you refer to hip-hop music, I, I guess there would be two categories. Shy Lynn, who's a believer, and then you have artists who do not operate explicitly from with a Christian worldview, radio-type stuff. Um, um, let's address the Christian artists first, if you will. I think Francis Schaeffer had some good rules of thumb that whatever form of music you use um, should match the content of the lyrics that you're singing. There should be a fittingness. So, for example, if you're singing on the resurrection, you don't want to have music always in a minor key, you know, and dreary and dull and slow because that uh, subverts the actual message. And on the other hand, if you're, speaking, if you're singing about the ugliness of sin, you don't want it to be half-happy. Hap so that would be ways in which you want the music to match the message. And I would say it's the same thing with any genre of music, hip-hop, rock, alternative, uh, Bieberish, pop, uh, you know, that kind of thing. When it comes to unbelievers... Southern gospel. Hmm? Southern gospel. And southern gospel is yeah. the genre. Yes, it is. Um, that's right. <laughs> um, on... on uh, on 
music written by unbelievers, I don't think it's a sin to listen to music written by unbelievers. I mean, there are examples of music, you know, that I will not ever play or listen to. 50 Cent in the club is such a foul piece of music. I don't even want to pass through my ears. But I think music is like uh, reading um, the great books, in a sense, except they're not as great as the great books. It's a way of being aware of the culture around you, and uh, it's the language that people speak. So uh, as far as the brother who's stumbling... Sometimes the person that you're dealing with is actually somebody who would stumble because of you. But a lot of times it's a strongly opinionated brother. And he's not in danger of stumbling. He's just in danger of having an aortic explosion. (laughs) And I'm less worried about that guy than I am about someone who would stumble. Well, I think that is the point of his question, though, is how do I relate to someone who has a different conviction than I do concerning music or anything of that nature? And I think the scripture does make a point that you have to be sensitive to that that believer. I mean, uh, the, the, the difficult thing about a weaker brother, according to Romans 14, is that the weaker brother thinks he's the stronger brother. And that, that makes it a little complicated. That makes it a little difficult. Um, having come from an independent Baptist background, I know what it's like to be around those who have very strong convictions and opinions about things that I'm convinced scripture uh, gives us a great deal of liberty. However, I am sensitive uh, about what their convictions are. For example, last fall I preached in an independent Baptist church. Well, I pulled out my King James Bible. Absolutely. You know, uh, I don't, I don't particularly have a strong conviction about which translation to use. But why offend them? Why, why make them stumble? Why be a hindrance? Now, if, if in a, you said, how, how then do I deal with? Do I confront him? I'm not sure if confront would be the right way or the right word. If you have the opportunity to discuss, you know, I, 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 I'm pretty sure that, that uh, uh, this brother probably knows uh, or, or will know you, that you have a different conviction about music. The opportunity to discuss that will come up. And, and always, whenever we're dealing with those who have different convictions than we do about certain items of liberty, that we always deal with them graciously and patiently. But uh, in other words, if, if you know that that brother will stumble at, at Christian uh, rap, then I wouldn't be playing it whenever he got in your car. That, you know, just common sense things like that where you try to be helpful to that person. Uh, but on the other hand, they, they're not going to, as Paul says, they're not going to rule your life either. You know, you do have that liberty uh, in, in, in the Lord, but I don't, I don't go out of my way to make them stumble. I think there's a theme that might be already emerging in some of our discussions this morning that's kind of helpful to see is if you have unity on what's essential being the gospel and then you therefore have some liberty on the non-essentials, that doesn't mean you're always going to be in the exact same place of fellowship. That's why you might have a Presbyterian church and a Baptist church, even though both of you put the, you know, exalt Christ and the gospel to the center point. Because there's some distinctions on, on particulars, you're willing to say, okay, we'll love you, we just won't we won't build the same church with you in the exact same way. So when you take that to moral issues, like some of the things we're talking about, whether rap music or even alcohol, um, there's a sense in which, for example, here at Southeastern, um, no one here is denying that the Scripture may give liberty to consume alcohol. And indeed, you may come to the conviction that you're free to do so. But once you then enter into this particular covenant and this fellowship, you're saying, I'm in glad-hearted submission, we'll choose not to during this season. And I think that's part of what we're after, is to not say that we're restricting your liberty, but rather when you chose to come to a school like this, 
you restricted your own liberty for the sake of your education in this season. And I think that's part of the agreement of what's going on. So if you do that with something like music, then the, I think the proper way to address somebody is to say, you know, I respect that you might disagree with me on this, uh, but I'm also going to say that I think that we have some liberties within the bounds of Scripture to listen to something different. And uh, it's, it's not worth us having an argument over, but perhaps we don't need to listen to the same music at the same time. So I think there's some places for that kind of liberty within the gospel. Okay. Question? Matthew Myers. I'm from Dallas, Texas. Um, just wanted to get you guys' input on the SBC possible name change that's coming up and maybe some positives to that and some negatives of that. And if I could, maybe get you guys to make some suggestions of what you would change it to if you had the chance. Well, let me start with the first part. Y'all can think on the second part. I brought it up in my class this morning. It was very interesting. I said, I'm just curious, how many of you think that changing the name is a good thing, a bad thing, you don't care. And uh, it was not quite a third, a third, a third, but uh, there was a significant uh, group behind each one of them, which uh, tips me off to what I suspect, and that is this. Um, the discussion and then the possibility of a name change is going to be very, very emotional, uh, even potentially volatile. Uh, not in the sense of people attacking each other, but I mean just the emotions rising uh, very high. Uh, I mentioned this morning in the class that I think part of the reason is the SBC is a very diverse group of people. David Dockery's identified at least eight different subcultures within the SBC. It's probably even more than that, which is why, again, we've all agreed uh, that we think the uni that the Southern Baptist Convention can be unified, but it can be unified kind of in a minimalist way around three things, international missions, North American church planning, and theological education as reflected in the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Uh, we can agree on those three things. I, I, I can then see great diversity beyond that and still be fine with that in terms of style of music, how you do church, and so on. But the issue of the SBC, if you live north of the Mason-Dixon, you think changing the name is absolutely the most uh, wise course of action to proceed and to follow. I clearly understand that. Uh, if you live south of the Mason-Dixon line and you happen to be my age or older, uh, there's a lot more resistance to it because there's a history and a heritage uh, that many people identify with and feel like that's a, a good thing. Uh, my own, I, I'm clearly on record on this for a, no, a number of years. I've been advocating that we should consider strongly a name change well over a decade, probably longer than that, because I do think that um, Southern Baptist Convention does not represent well what we want to become. It may be accurate of who we are right now, but the fact is we're now in all 50 states in the United States. We're putting massive efforts into uh, reaching the northeast and the northwest. I, I would love to see the center of SBC life move out of the south, still be strong in the south, but move to these monstrous population centers around North America. And do I think Southern Baptist Convention is, at least on some level, an impediment to that? I do. Uh, I think it does. Uh, now... The second issue is a name. Uh, just to change the name for the sake of changing the name is not a wise thing for us to do. And this has not been uh, this has been discussed, I think, eight times 
since World War II. And there was even a committee that formed, that studied, and came back and said, you know what, all the good names are gone. This is the best we've got. Might as well stay with it. And that's what they decided. Um, this committee is going to have a real challenge to, if they decide, yes, we should bring forward a, a new name for the SBC, uh, that's going to be a Herculean effort. And, again, there are going to be avenues for you to provide uh, your input as far as suggestions, and uh, happy. And I know they're happy to receive them, but it's a very emotional, complex, and then one other thing, and I'll let the guys respond, uh, it could be very costly. The last time it was looked at, uh, the, the question was raised, what would be the cost in all of this? And it was estimated at a quarter of a million dollars. I suspect it's much larger than that because let's take, for example, um, most of your state conventions would have to go back and reincorporate their names, which means they've got to go through legal processes to change, for example, the Georgia Baptist Convention. Uh, maybe they wouldn't have to, but, but most likely they would because of their affiliation with the SBC. Everything on the national level would require lawyer involvement for name changes and things of that nature. So it's a very complex issue. We do have a great committee. Uh, Jimmy Draper, whose chair, is a phenomenal individual. Really good people are on the committee. I trust every one of them. Some of them I would trust with my life. And so I, I'm, I'm very comfortable trusting them to study this. And if they think there is the need for us to move forward on this, to bring back something that hopefully Southern Baptists can get behind. But it will be a very, very emotional moment uh, at the SBC in New Orleans if it happens. It has, by the way, happened two consecutive years because it's a bylaw change to the SBC. We would have to vote to change the name this year in New Orleans, and uh, well, in 2012, and then vote again to change the name at the 2013 convention. Guys, want to jump in? You know, I, I agree completely. I, I, you know, Southern Baptist Convention is not a bad name in and of itself. I think one of the our, our network of churches, uh, one of one of the negatives of our good family, is that our churches tend to be culturally monolithic. And, you know, we've sort of built our brand on middle class white people. And when our churches are so segregated, um, I think it's you know it says something unintentionally negative about the gospel. That if you want barriers to be torn down, look to the government to do it. Because they can do it. They can force school integration and they can, you know, whatever. Look, look at the entertainment arenas, you know, sports competitions. White people and black people sit next to each other, Latino, Asian, you name it. And uh, I think what we want to do, and the name change can just be a part of it symbolically, is to say that no, the Sunday morning hour should not be the most segregated hour of the year that the gospel destroys barriers, social and economic and racial, and only the gospel can truly destroy those barriers. Now, the name change is not going to change that, but maybe symbolically it's our way of saying we want to expand past a geographically and culturally niched past. A good past, but not uh, the best Good past, good past in part, yeah. but it does have its uh, dark side as well. Either one of you? Well, the I, the reason why people don't want to change it is because like, they do think that there is a brand. Right. Uh, they think that there is a heritage there. Uh, the, the, the problem, you've, the, both of you have already highlighted, is that when the brand uh, no longer really correctly communicates who we are or who we see ourselves becoming. A good example is this institution or this, these facilities right here. 
Um, this is the old campus of Wake Forest College. Now, if one wants to find Wake Forest University, don't come to Wake Forest. It's 100 miles away. Um, you know, why? I mean, this town never forgave Wake Forest College for, for leaving and then keeping the doggone name. Uh, you know, it, they didn't change it to, to Reynolds University uh, or Winston-Salem College. Uh, so, so, no, they went over there and they're 100 miles away, but they're Wake Forest University over there. And so now they have a name that is strictly a matter of their heritage that doesn't describe their reality. And I think that uh, if they had any decency, they'd go ahead and give up that name and give it back to us so we could call ourselves Wake Forest College here. <laughs> Same idea. Same idea. We are no longer merely the Southern Baptist Convention. At the time that the Southern Baptist Convention was created, there was the Southern Baptist and the Northern Baptist Convention, and it was, since it was a geographical description of who we are. Uh, we are no longer in simply the South, where, as you pointed out, in all 50 states. It would be very weird to find out churches in North Carolina were in the Florida Baptist Convention because it doesn't geographically describe the, you know, what it ought to be. Well, it's weird to see churches in California or Montana that are part of the Southern Baptist Convention. So I think that just common sense would say it's time to do a name change. You know, my own experience in my life is I, I grew up Roman Catholic. I, uh, much of my discipleship took place through parachurch ministries. I was in the uh, Christian Missionary Alliance and then a Presbyterian Church of America. And then I found my home in the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, but one of the reasons why I found my home here was, I think, shared by many of us, is that um, it's the strategic emphasis to try to reach the nations to bring worship and glory to the king of the universe. And this denomination is particularly committed to the Great Commission. Maybe one idea would be the Great Commission Baptist. Um, so, I don't know, that those possible ideas, but to tell about who we are and what our central commitments are, those are the kind of things we're looking at. I would say this, and we'll take your question. New Orleans could be very fascinating for two reasons. One, if this issue actually gets there. Secondly, uh, there are many of us that are praying, and I think there's a overwhelming likelihood that um, Fred Luter uh, will run for president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And if Dr. Luter runs uh, and is elected, which I think he would be overwhelmingly, and he would be the first African-American in history to be president of the SBC. Uh, that will send a statement uh, around the world. I promise you it will be on the headline of all the major newspapers the very next day. And so in many ways that could get us much further down the road in saying some things we'd like to say than even the name change. But it could be a very interesting SBC. And so for some of you who've never been to one, next year would be a really good time for you perhaps to come to your first one because it could be historic uh, on a number of levels and also certainly is going to engender a lot of interesting uh, conversation. Can I Let make a plug? Sure. Yes, we're going to have um, six hours of classes uh, available for those who go to the SBC next year. A class on the SBC and a class, an evangelism class on crossover. We're going to waive the tuition on those six hours of classes. So why don't all of you just plan on being at the SBC next summer as messengers from your church. Ask your local church if you can be a messenger and be a messenger. That way you can be a voting participant and take these classes. You'll get six hours of credit. We're also working with Gentilly Baptist Church for, for those who are, need some place to stay. 
Uh, and so we would like to see 150, 200 of our students go next year to the SBC convention uh, in New Orleans. So just wanted to make that plug. Okay. Let's type the question in the back, then I'll come down here real quick. I think my question is relevant to this discussion concerning our denomination. Last Tuesday in the USA Today, there was an article summarizing some of the findings from George Barna in his book, Futurecast, concerning how Americans are customizing their belief systems and religions. How do you feel the, um, the lack of emphasis on denominational distinctives and the, the human ability to customize beliefs affects evangelism and the growth of the church in the future? Well, I'll say this. I do think that that is a descriptive, um, uh, is an accurate description of what's happening, uh, which I think makes it more incumbent upon us to make sure we are clear and distinct, uh, Mike, in who we are, in what we believe. Um, if we're going to be effective evangelists, we certainly have got to know the culture. But we also got to know what we believe and why we believe, and we've got to be uh, equipped to clearly articulate that. Again, do I think many of our churches are falling short in this area? Yes. Again, I mentioned in my class this morning, uh, one of my son's pastors in Lebanon, Tennessee, very conservative area, a church that would, without any reservation, affirm their full commitment to the Bible. He did a survey, anonymous survey, a few weeks ago, basically on the exclusivity of the gospel and discovered that uh, 78% of his people don't believe in the exclusivity of the gospel. They actually believe that a good man on an island who never hears the gospel could go to heaven when he dies. And uh, so he was scandalized, but not surprised. I suspect your churches are not much different. And that means we haven't done a very good job in our own family of helping our people to clearly grasp and understand who we are, what we believe. And the, the, I think the pressure to capitulate to the culture is only going to increase. And therefore, that requires of us both a loving, gracious disposition, but also a clarity of conviction concerning what we do believe. And we have to buck the trend. Uh, otherwise, we will lose not our Baptist distinctiveness, uh, as much as our biblical distinctiveness, and that's clearly the issue. I taught a class at James Madison University called God, Meaning, and Morality, and I had a student in that class named Micah, and Micah was a really uh, uh, good kid. I really liked him a lot, not a believer, um, and one day we got an opportunity to travel together for about an hour, and Micah, during that drive, said, uh, you know, Doc, I, I actually, um, I really like a lot of things that the Buddha said. I, I really like a lot of things that I read, read in Hinduism. I really like a lot of things that happen in Islam, and I like a lot of things in Christianity. So what I do is I just take a little piece of each one of those, and I've created my own religion. And so I, I had a good relationship with him. I wouldn't recommend you say this to someone you just meet on the street. So um, I, I looked over at Mike, and I said, Mike, I, I think that's probably one of the most arrogant statements I've ever heard in my life. Now, a college university student who's used to that kind of hodgepodge of, of quote-unquote tolerance couldn't understand that, and he was shocked that I would say that to him. I said, think of what you've just said. You just said you're smarter than Muhammad, you're smarter than Jesus, you're smarter than the Buddha, and you're willing to say that you can judge all those religions and just take a piece out of them and make your own thing. That's an incredibly arrogant statement, and it, it, it really sent him on a long journey of thinking. Well, Mike, to answer your question, I think in the United States there's a similar thing going on among Christians, even just within denominationalism, that we think, okay, all those Baptists, they've got to get that wrong, and all those Presbyterians, they kind of get that wrong, and so we're just going to do church at home. We're all going to love Jesus and just get along. 
As a parachurch guy, that's exactly the way I used to think on that. And then you start leading people to Christ and discipling them, just like the Great Commission tells you to, and you get to passages of Scripture about something like baptism. And there's one baptism. And is that something you do to an infant, or is that something you do to an adult? And all of a sudden, you're creating a disciple who's trying to be faithful to the Word, and you're recognizing that you are choosing distinctives along your discipleship, and you're going to want to see more disciples made that way. And at that point, then, I think this whole idea of let's just love Jesus and get along, that works back to our first question on the general evangelistic level. But when you get to making disciples, you need to make distinctives. Go ahead. Michael Helms. I'm uh, from Palaka, Florida. Um, I have a different question for you all. Um, all my life, I, uh, I've always heard that you know God um, loves the sinner but hates the sin. Um, I've heard someone uh, talk about differently that um, God hates the sinner, and so uh, question to y'all is: uh, Does God hate the sinner? God, God hates sinners. Sinner. Does God hate sinners? Yeah. Does God hate sinners? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think that there is a universal love of God for all humanity, and I think that there is a universal desire on the part of God for all to be saved. I think that one can make a very strong scriptural argument for both statements. However, just like we've been talking about a pyramid or a triage, I think that uh, we should not be surprised that there is that within God, that there is an antecedent and consequent uh, understanding of the will of God, uh, that we do understand, as even John Piper says, that God's will is in layers, or it's pluriform. In other words, uh, there is a different way of understanding God's love. We don't... It's just because we think God loves all people does not mean that we believe that God is a universalist. It's very clear that God can have a genuine desire on the salvation of, for the salvation of all. But that does not mean that all will be saved. And so there is the requirement of repentance and faith for each and every person who is going to be saved in their trusting of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so yes, I think I can say at a very profound level that God does have a love for all people. He has a particular, unique love for His own. Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. I think that's something that all of us understand at a very basic level. I mean, I think we'd say, you know, I love my country, I love my students, uh, I, I have a love for the men at this, uh, on, on this platform, but it does not match the love that I have for my wife. You know, I have a unique, special love for her. And so that, that, kind of, that, that kind of language I think all of us understand in a very practical way. You do have in the Psalms where he actually speaks of hatred toward sinners. And I think what that calls us to do is to take very, very, very seriously the magnitude and the uh, awfulness of sin. So much so that there are times when God speaks as if the love or as if the, the sinner and his sin uh, is not separate because there's a sense in which it isn't. It is that sinner who is doing that sin which God hates, and therefore does he disdain in the greatest degree their actions, the character of that person who leads to those actions. Yes, he does. David Platt sat up here two years ago in one of our conferences and quoted that psalm and used it to again remind us of just how great is God's wrath towards sin, just how awful sin is, just what sin costs. Therefore, there's no sense. That you see, see, what David is responding to, what I think rightly is responded to, is this flippancy. Well, God hates sin, but he loves the sinner, which then makes sin sound not really so bad. No, sin is horrible. 
It caused the death of his son. So God has a raging anger and hostility, yea, hatred towards sin. And for us to water it down in any kind of a way is to move away from, I think, the biblical categories that Ken articulated there so very, very well. Here's just uh, come along and say, just as a matter of hermeneutics and theological method on an issue like this, um, just pay careful attention to how a word is used. Most often the meaning of a word is its use uh, is found not by etymology, by, but by its use within a context. Right. Love language and hate language in the Bible is a similar. Uh, Luke 14, 25-33, we are instructed that if we want to be disciples of Christ, we have to hate our mother and father, brothers and sisters, and even our, our wife and our children. And so the way the word hatred is used there is different. The way it would be used in different contexts. That's a different example than what you brought up. But uh, I think it shows that there are layers, like Ken was saying, uh, 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 layers, different types of love that God has and different types of hatred, different ways that those words are used. Don Carson has written a couple of really good books on this, so I would commend those to you as a way to do more study and research in how God does have this universal love for all, but Ken so has a very particular uh, filial love uh, for those who are his sons and daughters. All right, go to the back, and then we'll come up. My name is Grayson Greco. I'm from Wilmington. And uh, my question is kind of crazy for us Baptists, but I know, Dr. Aiken, you're not a cessationalist. What is your guys' view on the fivefold ministry of a charismatic church, specifically the role of prophecy within the church? Well, I'm, I'm, are any of you a cessationist? No? No? No. All right. Uh, so we're all probably uh, cautious continualists. Uh, and by cautious, we mean whatever we do, we're going to subject rigorously to the categories of biblical revelation so that uh, would I rule out that someone could prophesy, um, speak in tongues, interpret tongues, heal, do works of miracles? No. But I'm going to subject those things to the very rigorous categories that you find uh, in the Bible. And therefore, uh, when they don't meet the scriptural criterion, then I'm going to reject them as either something that is emotionally induced or blatantly demonic. Uh, let's just take tongues, which is an easy one, but as many times as put in the context of prophecy, tongues is not unique to Christianity. Uh, tongues in, the, in its practice in other religions predates Christianity. We know easily uh, a thousand years. And so tongues is found today in Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism. So how do I know whether or not the uh, gift of tongues is being exercised authentically? I go to 1 Corinthians 14. And I find out there that it tells me that when the gathered body comes together, it's two, no more than three, always with an interpreter, one at a time, and women don't do it. Now, if it meets all those criteria, then it may be a legitimate expression of tongues. But still, you've got to judge the content of what is uh, said as well. That certainly would apply to the issue of prophecy. Uh, now, having said that, do I think prophecy can be practiced today in terms of future telling? Yes. But it is going to be exceptional, not the norm, as it was in the Bible. Uh, and it's going to be completely consistent with and line up uh, with Scripture. And, of course, if the prophecy is wrong, then we immediately know that the source of that prophecy wasn't God, don't we? And so when people make these outlandish predictions that then do not come to fruition, then either one, it was self-induced by their own human imagination, or secondly, it has its source in the evil one. 
And uh, the scriptures, I think, again, provide very clear guidelines for that. Deuteronomy 18 and then, of course, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 as well. You want to add anything? Well, I think that uh, one of the mistakes that can be made our misunderstandings can be when we said, well, you're cautiously open. That doesn't mean that I agree with the standard charismatic interpretation of any particular gift. I'm not particularly sold on the idea that tongues was an ecstatic utterance, no. particularly in the book of Acts. Uh, I think it was the supernatural ability to speak in a language one did not know. Absolutely. And we're talking about an earthly language. That seems to be very clear from Acts chapter 2. Um, I would love to have that gift. Uh, who would not love to have that gift, especially at a Hebrew exam? Uh, so, so uh, you know, that, that, that would be a marvelous gift. That doesn't mean that I, for one moment, think that tongues as typically exercised in a charismatic setting is the same thing that was going on in the book of Acts. It may have been the same thing that was going on in 1 Corinthians, which may explain why Paul was trying to get them to stop. Uh, so, so, I mean, we can have that discussion. Uh, so being cautiously open doesn't mean that we accept the standard interpretation given by the typical charismatic church. All right. Uh, right here. Drew Rayner from Georgia, and I have two questions, one a little more serious and one a little more lighthearted. The first, uh, just some friends and I have been wrestling with, what, is a, what do you guys offer as a healthy approach to handling both the uh, modern lineup of the canon and the books of the Bible that we have and balancing that with the and, and balancing an understanding of God's providence giving us this alignment that we have now in our Bibles and handling uh, the, the Hebrew arrangement of the Old Testament scripture and just I guess seeing the difference that's there and believing God has providentially guided it to where it is now but also believing there's something in the old arrangement and just wanting to land in a, a healthy spot on that and then Specifically for Dr. Aiken, who should the dogs hire as the new offensive coordinator at the end of the season? <laughs> oh, gosh. I'd say anybody but Mike Bobo, but that's not very nice, so I'm not going to say that. When you're um, talking about dogs, do you mean the Cowboys? <laughs> we will have a further conversation next Tuesday. And uh, for those of you that are real sports fans, you know that the Cowboys and the Redskins play next Monday night. And one of us will be grinning and one of us will be quiet. Probably Dr. Lederbach. But anyway, so uh, uh, I, we'll go to the serious question. Um, the scriptures are inspired. They are infallible and inerrant. Though I do think God providentially guided the coming together of the canon, I don't think we can say that the ordering of the books has that same degree of inspiration. But can we learn from it? So, for example, I've shared in my hermeneutics class, it's very interesting that in the Hebrew canon, uh, the book that immediately precedes Ruth is Proverbs. And the last chapter of Proverbs is about a virtuous woman. And what does uh, Boaz say about Ruth in chapter 3, but that she is indeed a Proverbs 31 kind of lady. So there are some very interesting intercanonical uh, connections that the Hebrew ordering of the scriptures uh, bring out more clearly than does the English um, ordering. 
So do I think that's one of the great values of taking hermeneutics, of taking Hebrew, of looking at biblical theology? Yes, I do. I think we can see some really helpful things there. Do I want to carry those kind of things to the same level of authority as I do the inspired, infallible, inerrant text? No. But I think you uh, miss some really wonderful insights into the ordering of the developing of theology if you don't take that into uh, consideration. We're good on that. Back there. Uh, Brandon Amick from Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, I've got a question regarding the, uh, the official Southern Baptist statement on environmentalism and creation care. Um, I noticed uh, several of you have signed that, I believe. Um, just had a question regarding the uh, the end of the and my phone just just crushed. Well, while you're looking it up, let me say that's not an official Southern Baptist Convention statement. Okay. That was a statement that was penned and authored by Jonathan Merritt, former student here, son of James Merritt, uh, that a number of us signed on with as a reflection of our agreement with what he was saying. So it's not an official SBC statement. It was a statement of a number of Southern Baptists. Um, I had it downloaded, but it just left it, it left my phone. But my question was regarding the end of the, the article, the second article statement, talking about regardless of uh, I was going to read it straight from it, but I can't get it to come up. Regardless of uh, of uh, whether there's a truthfulness of the issue, we will, we as Southern Baptists will continue to engage the problem. I'm just wondering if you could get some commentary on that because I know that several Southern Baptists have. Uh, express some tension there as to regards of what that, how to articulate that statement. So just want, wanted to get your input on what led you to sign that and how Southern Baptists should be engaging this issue. Okay. Well, since I, did, did, did you sign it as well? You did not. Did you? You did. You did. Okay. Um, basically, the statement was trying to say that Southern Baptists are not obscurantists when it comes to the issue of the environment. We recognize that the cultural mandate of Genesis 1 requires us to be good stewards of all of God's creation. And why would we not be in favor of clean air, clean water, and things that will promote health universally across our, our globe? We were saying, I believe, if I'm picking up on that particular article, our statement meant was we think that the scientific uh, consensus is not there and that the, the jury is global warming, that one in particular, the, 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 the uh, evidence is just not in. Now, of course, the left says, oh, it's absolutely in, and it's de facto the case. Of course, now it's being contested all over the place. What we were simply saying is, look, we're going to be good stewards, and we're going to continue to watch the debate. We're going to continue to listen to all the voices, and we will try to make good, wise, judicious decisions in light of biblical revelation and the, revel or the teaching and the knowledge that we gain from uh, the sciences as well. Um, if you look at the statement, it doesn't take a specific position on anything. That was intentional. What it was saying is, contrary to what some people think about Southern Baptists, we do care about the environment. We do think it's important for us to be asking these questions and to be wasteful, uh, to be hazardous, to not take into consideration how our um, exploitation of the environment harms this good creation that God has given us. To not do that would be irresponsible. And therefore, we need to be asking these kind of questions. Some would say we were already asking those questions, but I don't think it takes anyone uh, long to realize we're pretty much identified with being... Uh, well, come back to... You think Southern Baptist Convention, most people are going to think anti-environment. 
Now, you say, that's not fair. I don't think it's fair either. But I do think that's what a number of people thought. And so as a result of that, myself and a number of others allowed our names to be attached to that document to say, no, we do care about the environment. We think that we are stewards of all of God's creation, and therefore we should be thinking about engaging and and being involved in trying to promote the healthiest possible environment that we possibly can. Now, is that something that I'm going to be, you know, pursuing with all of my uh, being? Is that a a, a top-level issue for me? No. Uh, The gospel world evangelization is. But as a holistic Christian, I'm going to be involved in trying to promote good in every quadrant of my life, including how I treat the environment as well. Okay. Could I jump in? Sure. Real quick. Let me, I'm trying to be brief on this because we're winding down. If I could deal with it theologically and politically, because I think both of those are important. Um, you started out by talking about environmentalism. I will not sign on to an ism of any sort right. uh, uh, like that. But I will deal with environmental issues um, theologically. Um, I think the doctrines of creation, redemption, and new creation are significant for this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then it's affirmed over and over again that God's creation is good. It's ontologically and structurally good. Doctrine of new creation. In the end, when Jesus comes back, he is bringing with him a new heavens and earth. That's the same phraseology. This is a physical, material universe. My particular view of the new creation is that it's actually this creation, that God restores this creation, that he created it, and that it's good and that he will not trash it. And so there's an affirmation of the physical and the material, um, even in the doctrine of uh, redemption and in Christology. You have Colossians 1, Christ him. You have the Ephesians 1, salvation passage. You have Romans 8 passage that all deal with Christ's redemption of the physical and material creation. And so I think there, there should be an emphasis on caring for God's good creation. I mean, should we not care for God's good creation in the right manner, not deifying it? Right. I mean, Christians of all people should. Politically, I think the problem that we've had in the SBC is that sometimes we hitch our bandwagon to a political party. Uh, it's not just SBC. It's all, all churches have a tendency to do that. I mean, in the 80s, Richard Lane and David Dockery produced a wonderful book on creation care issues. And I still use it. It's outdated, but the theology behind it, Millard Erickson, David Dockery, Richard Land, and company. But I think we tended to push back in, you know, in the 90s and the 2000s when it became a political liberal versus conservative issue, I think sometimes we tend to castigate anyone who cares about creation care and the environment because they must be a dirty liberal of some sort. And uh, I think we need to be, you know, be careful with that. We always want to speak uh, constructively and theologically to the issue and not allow ourselves to be pushed around too much by the political parties because the gospel can't be contained. Just a quick, one more quick comment on this. Uh, it might be good for you all to be aware that Dr. Keithley's doing a 40 questions book about the creation. So it's not quite environmental questions, but it is related to that. Dr. Ashford has just published an article in a book on that. And uh, next week I have a, a manuscript due for Broadman and Holman on uh, a book called True North, which is doing Christology and how one should use your good Christology to do a look at environmental ethics. And uh, hopefully that will be out next year at ETS. Uh, so that's it. that is an issue that we're paying a lot of attention to. Real quickly. My name is Ethan Drum from Conway, South Carolina. Clayton King uh, spoke in chapel a few weeks ago, and he is... Last guess, week. Last week, and uh, considered an itinerant evangelist. Hmm? With the Ephesians 4, verse 11, that gifting of an evangelist, what does that look like in the local church? And for you, what do you think that means? And if someone misses every Sunday, can they be considered kind of a part of that local church? If they're 
Is there another way they could do it? What does it look like now in our culture and for the local church? Wow. I mean, I was an evangelist for a while, um, for, for about a decade. I think one of the negatives in the way that I practiced that gifting is that I divorced myself from the community of faith and I was not cared for and nurtured and held accountable by local church. So I think the healthiest way, probably, what would have been healthier for me is if I could have, if my church would have found a way of helping me a bit financially so that I didn't have to be on the road 50 out of 52 weeks a year. And I think my church probably would have. And uh, that they help to determine how often they think I should be on the road. I think my pastors should have a hand in that. And I shouldn't be a, a lone ranger making that decision myself. That flies in the face of uh, probably the practice over the past 50 years. But I saw in my life a stunted spiritual growth precisely because I was not being discipled. And discipleship is primarily done within the redeemed community. People who know me and see me live on a regular basis and are not afraid to speak into my life and speak pointed truth. And so I think what arose out of that was uh, in me was arrogance, um, a too high of a view of myself. I think uh, temptation towards sin was not curbed by consistent Christian relationships within the Christian community. And uh, in fact, at the very beginning of my time as an evangelist, I um, had a season of sin, tangible sin, uh, pornography. And I think it arose specifically from that. So uh, however the gift of the evangelist is practiced, it ought not be divorced from the local church. And I think the evangelist ought to allow his pastors to speak into his life and help determine his schedule. And I would just affirm that. I wouldn't just say that for the evangelist. I don't know if, if you all noticed that a couple times I've been allowed to speak in chapel, I always start with that I, that I preach from the point of view of I'm under the, elder, the, the elders of my local church. I do that on purpose to try to teach something to the congregation I'm preaching to. This past uh, Thursday, I submitted my sermon that I presented yesterday in chapel to my senior pastor to see if he would approve that before I could come forward on that. And I think this is the kind of thing that local church involvement, it's glad-hearted submission to people who are willing to speak truth in our lives. Ethan, I think that the gift of evangelist both has an equipping component and a proclamation component so that some who have that gift are good at training others to do it. They do it on a personal level very well. Others have the ability to do it more in a congregational or uh, large setting. So I don't want to say the gift of the evangelist should be understood monolithically as this guy that sat on the road, you know, 52 weeks out of the year preaching in different churches. That can be one manifestation of it. But I think that Bruce and Mark's point of accountability in that assignment is crucial and one that has been uh, unfortunately too often missed. Okay, real quick, I think we can get into the last two back there, and then I'll come here. We'll try to do it fast. Uh, real quick, um, I'm Joel from Alabama. Um, what do y'all think the uh, effects of the gospel will be on Southern Baptist churches? Because I know in the last five, ten years, it's really been kind of put to the front, you know, with together for the gospel and stuff like that. What are some of the practical effects that you see it happen uh, in our churches today? Well, I think it's changing the way we think about sanctification and discipleship. I think that in some cases we're beginning to realize we've got churches filled with unbelievers who were cultural Christians but not converted Christians because, as Billy Graham said, they've been inoculated by religion and had missed the gospel. So, but at the same time, we're also seeing resistance uh, being really. Of course, also we have to be careful. Some people can go out and just throw out, "Oh, I'm gospel-centered," and they use that as a cliche. Uh, which is almost elitist in the attitudes. We don't want to go there because, if anything, the gospel humbles. It never promotes pride. But I think it's a healthy movement within the SBC, but not a movement that's not without some pain 
and some of the pain is good pain uh, because it's helping us re-clarify just what is at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And, and I think it is right. We are saved and sanctified by the power of the gospel. I'm still learning to work that out in my own life. I think it's something we all continually struggle with because we're so prone to legalism and so prone to work slipping in. And we're continually having to push back against that, not so that we go the other way and become antinomians. Uh, that's the other extreme that's equally detestable to God. Uh, but at the same time, most of us probably in our Southern Baptist context have struggled more with legalism than we have with antinomianism. The gospel, if we keep it focused in the center, saves us from either one of those. All right, last question here. It's Kyle from uh, Miami, Florida. Wanted to ask a question. Um, how would you embrace and um, engage Christians who have a lifestyle that really reflects Galatians 5, but do cling on to the, the lifestyle of homosexuality. And so my question is, one, how would you embrace that or um, talk to them about it? And two, would you even consider themselves actually Christians? Mark, you preached on Galatians 5 yesterday. You want to take that? I want to get you just to, uh, if I could clarify your question a little bit there, in terms of uh, when you say, how, do I, how would I... Um, I'm not exactly sure what you're asking. If you could kind of rephrase it one more time. Um, basically, what it's coming from is I have a sister who embraces homosexuality. Okay. And um, she, she claims also that she's a Christian. And you can see evidence through the fruits of the Spirit that it's, something is there. But my question is, would I, and my family is asking too, will we call her a Christian, yes or no? Okay. So the way I would want to go after that, because I don't know your own particular context enough to speak fully directly to you on that, the way I'd want to go after the larger question is to say, um, what is the structure by which God created the universe? And starting in Genesis and looking and saying, did God create more than two genders? Or are males for females and females for males? And if that's the structure of the universe, then when we get to a fallen world, then you have lots of different versions of how people are fallen. Certainly sexuality is one of those places where the structures that God put in place are now broken by humans in our own way. So I would, I would say that homosexuality is wrong based on the way God created the universe and what Jesus is redeeming us to. Does that mean that people who struggle with the desire to be involved with homosexual relationships cannot be a Christian? I don't think that that excludes that. But I do think that that person should be seeking to become conformed to what God built them for again. And so there would be a willingness, even if it's a long, hard-fought struggle, to leave behind a pattern that the Scriptures describe as sinful. So in that, I hopefully we have both a sense of humility and love, but not a willingness to water down what I think are the structures that God puts in place for the good of humanity. I think uh, for, for those of you in here who will be in a pulpit and who are pastors, um, one good thing for us to remember is to be careful how we preach on homosexuality. As Mark was saying, we want to preach with truth and grace, yes. not with truth and arrogance. Because what happens is, even if you don't have anyone in the pew who is struggling with homosexual desires, and, and probably you do, you just don't know it. But even if you didn't, if you are not preaching in such a way with, with a certain sort of a grace, homosexuals will never find their ways into your pew. And the people in the pew will never invite them to your church. And so when we preach, we need to preach with the self-deprecating irony that the gospel calls forth. Who am I that God would have saved me? Look at the filth of my heart before God saved me and the idols that I've clung to even after he has saved me. And when we preach like that, with that pattern, with that rhythm, and when that rhythm is one of grace and gospel, 
I think folks who struggle with homosexuality and with that unhealthy and ungodly pattern of living, they're going to feel comfortable coming to your church and they're going to feel comfortable coming and talking with you uh, about the gospel. So, uh, yeah, let me just, one last thing to you, Colin. As, as truth and grace begins to bear on a person's life, while they at first may be resistant to the work of the Spirit for change in a particular area, like a Corinthian dog, oh, I want to hold on to that sort of thing. As this Holy Spirit begins to get up, if there is true growth, then there should be a willingness to submit all areas there. So what I would look for if it was my sister would be, over a period of time, is there, a, is there an entrenchment or is there a willingness to surrender? And that would be the first thing I would be looking for in my evaluation. All right, guys. Thank you all so much for blessing us with your time today. Say thank you to the panel, and you are dismissed.